I'm Michael Schulder. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, introducing a new voice on guns in America. My piece is titled, I've been shot in combat, and as a veteran, I'm telling you, allowing teachers to be armed is an asinine idea. U.S. Army war veteran Matt Martin, recipient of two Purple Hearts and a Commendation Medal for Valor for his service in Afghanistan, has written a piece on the debate over whether to arm teachers. His story has struck a chord, receiving more than two million views in the past two weeks. Anyone suggesting this solution has clearly never experienced a situation like the one seen in Parkland because it oversimplifies the complexity of an active shooter situation, especially in close quarters. It's not as easy as a good guy with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun. Matt Martin's combat duty ended when he was shot in an enemy ambush. The feeling of Arnold Schwarzenegger swinging a sledgehammer in my leg rushed over my body. That's what being shot by a high-powered assault rifle felt like to me. The bullet missed my colon and spine by a half inch and traveled over a foot inside my body. It's what he experienced before that shot was fired that leaves him so opposed to relying on teachers with guns to protect their young students. Regardless of training, you don't know how people will react when they hear gunshots. You don't know how people will react when the person next to them is shot. You don't know how a person will respond when their task is shooting someone they know or taught. You just don't know. Uh, Matt Martin, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here. Tell me about the firefights that you were in in Afghanistan. You were deployed there in May of 2011, and I'm looking at a, a photo of you right now. It's your face quite bloodied, either on or shortly after July 11th, which is that last firefight you were in uh, where you were wounded. Right. So uh, I was in approximately somewhere around, I want to say, eight firefights overall, um, you know, and that was within the first two months of deploying. The last one took place when I was shot on July 11, 2011. You know, but other members that weren't wounded during that deployment have been involved in hundreds of firefights during the course of that year. And the picture that you actually reference is uh, from the first Purple Heart that I received when I actually stepped on an IED on June 23, 2011, only uh, about two and a half weeks prior to being shot. It's just sort of incredible for me and for probably for most of us who haven't served to think that you can step on an IED, get shrapnel in your face, and then go right back out on another patrol. Describe what happened when you stepped on that IED <laughs> and how quickly you had to get back out on patrol. Right. So when, when I stepped on that IED, I was the lead minesweeper for a patrol going into a village called Lackney. I was fortunate enough that I, I had a significant signature on the metal detector that informed me that there was most likely an IED in front of our patrol as we were moving towards this village. And so I was able to stop the patrol and push everybody back. And once everybody behind me was cleared, I took a step and turned around. And that first step that I took, the metal detector just started beeping like crazy again. There was a split second in my head where I thought, this is it, and the explosion happened. For me personally, I was extremely lucky with the outcome because the way that the, that the IED was planted into this mud wall, it actually forced the blast further away from the backside of me. And how fortunate I was that what I actually caught a signature of the first time was the battery pack. I'd actually stepped over the mechanism that triggers the IED itself. And when I turned around to start moving back 
towards safety where I where I'd pushed the rest of my platoon to, that's when I actually stepped on this pressure plate that that triggered the explosion. You know, so in the grand scheme of things, the fact that I was able to walk away from that incident is kind of a miracle in and of itself. And so I was partially blinded in my right eye. I had, I had shrapnel that had gone into my eye and tagged along, kind of holding my one hand uh, to a soldier as he led me back about a thousand meters to our aid station to receive aid, you know, where ultimately the captain that was there, he was our brigade surgeon. And he said it was about as close as he had ever seen somebody to being blind without actually being blind. I stayed two days at the, at the aid station just to get, you know, kind of general medical checks and to make sure that everything was okay. And then I went back to my unit and manned the radios for about two weeks until the scars and scabbing began to heal from my face. And so that it wasn't a greater risk of infection if I actually went out into the field. And, and you talk about the patrols, uh, and, and this just gets into, I mean, Afghanistan is a war we, uh, where the U.S. is still fighting. We don't hear much about it because there are so many other headlines. What did you consider your primary mission to be? It sounds like you were out patrolling a lot. You describe for me what, what your mission was, basically, as you saw it at the time. Right. So at, at the time that I deployed was right at the, the surge that had been announced uh, of sending you know, an increase of soldiers into Afghanistan to, to help topple the Taliban and their movement. U.S. President Barack Obama officially announced that 30,000 troops will be quickly deployed to Afghanistan. The 30,000 additional troops that I'm announcing tonight will deploy in the first part of 2010, the fastest possible pace. Our mission was kind of that coin doctrine of winning hearts and minds, where we would go into villages and, and try to meet with elders and sit down with them to discuss, you know, what are the basic needs of, of their village and how can we help supply those needs. Trying to connect these villages together to improve their ability to provide commerce and resources to each one of these villages and as a way to try to improve the quality of life for them. And what was really interesting is, is when we first arrived and when we first got to our, our combat outpost, our initial mission, we call it a movement to contact. And what that is, is basically we walk in every which way direction out of our base until we start receiving contact from the enemy. And we mark that as, okay, this is how far out we can move before we start meeting resistance. And what that enabled us to do is understand how the enemy actually moved into their fighting positions against us, where these enemies were actually located uh, in the directions around our base, and really help us kind of establish a perimeter that allowed us to then operate as the deployment continued throughout the year, kind of just walking until you get shot at. And, and then once you get shot at, you'll return fire. And once that firefight ends, you, you return to base. You're just walking around. You almost feel like you're doing it kind of aimlessly. But once you understand the purpose of it and how it can actually help you, you know, maybe a couple months down the road where you know how they actually infiltrate into their fighting positions and, and allow you to be a lot more effective in combating those members of the, of the Taliban that you're fighting against. I have to give a shout out to um, the online publication that had the wisdom to put out your piece, uh, Charlotte Five. 
com, as in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, in an interview with them, they had asked you about this concept uh, called violence of action. Explain violence of action to us as you've experienced it and why you believe that understanding that concept suggests we should not arm teachers. So violence of action, it means the unrestricted use of speed, strength, surprise, and aggression to achieve total dominance against your enemy. And so in this type of instance, it's an entirely different mental state because you are the aggressor. And there's a huge difference between that individual and the person who is forced to react. Because when you're forced to react, this is when your body and kind of those physiological responses are going to be kind of firing. The adrenaline is going to be pumping. And, you know, there are, there are those instances when, when people freeze, but then there's also you're trying to understand what is actually taking place. The first firefight I was ever in, I didn't actually understand that we were in a firefight until it became like extremely evident that they were shooting at us because it was just kind of a couple a couple shots that you heard off in the distance and you weren't really sure. So you're just trying to kind of understand what's actually taking place. And so the violence of action really brings in this level of confusion because people are trying to comprehend what's actually happening around them. And that is a huge tactical advantage for the, for the person that is the aggressor in that type of situation. Well, that, yeah, that's really fascinating to me because on the one hand, many people listening to this will rightfully say, you know, Afghanistan is very different from uh, a school or let's say any soft target, a movie theater. You're there, you're at war, you're expecting war. And yet at the same time, there you were on a patrol in hostile territory or territory you suspected could be hostile with potentially heavily armed enemies. And the first shots you heard, you did not even necessarily identify as shots aimed at, at you and your troops. Right, yeah. You know, to kind of give you the, the rundown, the, the timeline of how this took place, we were, we were on our way back to our base after trying to going into this village. It was actually the same village uh, that we tried to go into when I, when I stepped on the IED. So this is in, Kandahar province, the, the Panjway Valley, which is actually, it has the nickname as the birthplace of the, the Taliban movement. So our patrol, it was actually, uh, in this instance, was a joint patrol with Canadian Special Forces. Uh, we had actually done an air assault from a couple of Chinook helicopters earlier in the morning, dropped off outside on the outskirts of a village, and then began kind of making our way through these villages and trying to talk to the locals and and see what we could do for them. And we were actually starting uh, our walk back to our base. And it's during this time that about half of this patrol, which would have been probably about 40 people, maybe, the first half is in an open field and I'm in this, the back half. That's when we started to receive gunfire. And so my first and initial reaction, anytime we start getting shot at, is to run for cover and that's what I did. And I made it across this field. And when I made it across this field, there's this little berm that leads up. And just on the opposite end of that is this canal, this irrigation canal for these, these grape rows that they had. But that entire canal was backed up with soldiers who had already made it across and then were returning fire at that time. So I actually had no way to, to get into it. And so I, I took a prone position on the berm because I thought at that time we were only taking fire from one location uh, kind of directly in front of us. And 
that's when I heard my last name being yelled, you know, Martin, Martin. And that's when I saw that three of my platoon mates were pinned down in this open field. And so my, my reaction to that was to get a few guys that were in that canal uh, on a line with me to start laying suppressive fire for them so that they could you know, get up from where they were trapped and start running across to get to our position. And it's when the first individual got to me uh, that I was shot in my left thigh. And then that's also you know, a few seconds after being disoriented, realizing that we were actually not just getting shot at from in front of us, but from also behind us, and that an ambush was, was in fact taking place. This phrase, complex enemy ambush, means basically you're getting fire from more than one direction. Right. The way that this ambush had been set up is they had individuals kind of off in the distance directly in front of us that initiated the firefight. And then when we started to engage them, that's when their other two fighting positions started uh, shooting at us from behind our patrol and then from another direction. When you have kind of three fighting positions, we would call that an L-shaped ambush where uh, each one of those groups have a certain sector of fire that they're responsible for as a way to try to kind of trap the entire movement within their attack. And so, again, bringing this back to schools and some of these mass shootings, looking back to Columbine, uh, where you had two shooters, and this is you know, part of what's particularly frightening, one can now legally get the weapons to organize with just one partner a complex ambush in a soft target, be it a school or a movie theater. And even if you had armed people inside, they wouldn't necessarily be aware that it was a complex ambush, certainly not at first. Right. Yeah, definitely not. I think, uh, you know, the way that when I think of soft civilian targets and and trying to uh, conduct an ambush in those types of situations, just from my military background, is you know, those individuals, if you have one that goes into the school that starts shooting, well, then you can have that second person just waiting outside for everybody that starts running out. And then there you have it. So if two individuals had an AR-15, I think you can only imagine the type of destruction that they could do inside the school as well as outside when everybody starts to, to run away. You know, obviously this uh, deputy sheriff, perhaps more than one of them, have been heavily criticized for waiting outside in sort of a defensive posture, or at least a scoping the situation posture, rather than running into the building where the shooter was. And of course, this one particular deputy sheriff's uh, attorney now said that, look, you know, this deputy sheriff didn't even realize the shooting was going on inside. Uh, He thought the shots were coming from outside, and there's some evidence that the first shots were fired outside. I'm sure you've been following that aspect of the story, and did that trigger memories of, of your very first firefight? Yeah, you know, it's it really is. I think in, until you find yourself in these types of situations, you really don't know what to expect. And I think anybody who is a school resource officer, you know, they're not they're not necessarily expecting that when they're at school doing their job that a school shooting is going to take place while they're there. They're not expecting it to happen in the first place. And then so when it does, you're really trying to figure out, well, what is actually taking place and and if he hears shots coming from the outside, then from my understanding, he was a, he followed the, the protocols and procedures that they had for what he thought was actually happening. And it turns out that that may not actually be the case, you know, because this, this individual is then inside. It's very difficult 
in, in those few, first few moments to, to really kind of comprehend the fact that there is the shooting going, the, that it is taking place, and to try to hone in specifically on where it's coming from. That is, that is a very difficult task, uh, especially in the first few minutes. Tell us what kind of weapon you went out on patrol with in Afghanistan. Yeah, so I had an M4 carbine. It shoots a 5.56 millimeter round. You know, that's a, that's a standard issue infantry rifle, as well as a M320, which is a type of grenade launcher that can be attached to the rifle itself. It has uh, two rates of fire. One is semi-automatic, where you have to pull the trigger every time to fire one bullet. And then the other rate of fire is a three-round burst. So every time you pull that trigger, three rounds would come out. The only time that you would really use a three-round burst is if you're kind of overwhelmed and you really need to, to fire a lot of bullets downrange uh, in the direction that you're getting shot at because it's not, it's not a very accurate way to engage the enemy. Uh, it's really just meant to, to act as a suppressant when the time's pretty critical. And how does that compare to the, the rifle that's obviously in the news these days and, and that's so popular among many gun owners, uh, the AR-15? Yeah, the AR-15 is just the civilian version of the M4. And the M4 really is just a, it's got a shorter barrel than the M16, which was traditionally used in prior wars. So it comes standard magazine, holds 30 rounds. It's semi-automatic, so you have to pull the trigger every time that you want to fire one bullet. You know, it's, it's such a easy weapon system to use, which is part of the reason why it is so popular. And part of the reason why it is a standard issue rifle, the M4 is for... Uh, the infantry. With regards to that, you don't need, you know, tons of training to be able to to load that magazine, chamber around, and then fire off that entire thirty-round magazine. Anybody, they could do that in probably about fifteen seconds. And so, one aspect uh, uh, of the debates that's being discussed now is, given the quantity of people who are being killed in these in these some of these shootings, uh, with. Uh, rifles like the AR-15 is looking at the at the ammunition clips at the magazines, and you said you yours had 30 bullets in those magazines. How long would it take you to change a magazine? In a training environment where I'm not being shot at, uh, it's pretty simple to be able to hit the the release that's on the side of the M4 and drop that magazine out, put it back in your pouch, pull out a new one, and 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 reload. Um, I would say that's probably about maybe five seconds, five, six seconds in there. So, so let me ask you, because the reason I ask about, about these magazines is, you know, some people who have advocated basically outlawing the larger magazines, maybe limiting them to uh, 10 bullet magazines, that right. pause in between the change, is that a long enough pause to possibly stop a shooting or to escape a shooting? Absolutely. It's one of the things that I'm probably a big advocate of is limiting the, the overall uh, capacity of magazines because when you have a 30-round magazine, that's 30 bullets that get to be fired out in that time. Most of the school shooters or situations that I'm familiar with, when individuals have been able to tackle or subdue the shooter, it's, it's during that moment when they are reloading. And so the more that you can increase the frequency of that shooter having to reload, the better chance that individuals have to escape or to attack that individual uh, as they're trying to reload. What can one do with the best handgun against a tactical uh, semi-automatic rifle? 
Right. I mean, a lot of that just depends on the distance between you and that shooter. So a handgun is going to be less effective and less accurate the longer and further distance between you and the and the and the shooter. Somebody with a an M4 or an AR15 in this example, that's going to have a longer barrel to it. It's going to be more accurate at a longer range and it's going to come out of the out of the weapon faster. So, you know, if a, if a teacher were to engage an active shooter from, you know, one end of a hallway down to the other, the chances of that handgun effectively you know, neutralizing that threat, I would put at as slim to very low. Whereas that individual who has that AR-15 on the other end, if they have a 30 round magazine, they're going to be able to put a lot of bullets down towards that teacher and then a lot more accurately and a lot more deadly as well. So given your experience, uh, let's just say you were a teacher and you had the handgun of your choice. It was a concealed weapon and your first job as teacher's first job is in a case like this is to barricade themselves and their and their students in the classroom would you not have some advantage as a teacher having a handgun barricaded in the classroom not going and running after the shooter because you're not sure where he or she is but but you've got the gun and if that shooter uh, with the tactical rifle comes in wouldn't you be better off armed than unarmed i think hypothetically you could you can make that argument. I think in reality, the way that that situation plays out is that if you are that teacher in a classroom with a handgun, when that door opens, you, who who's actually coming in? Is it the shooter? Is it the police? Is it potentially another teacher or student that's trying to get away from the you know the massacre that's happening outside those those classroom doors? That's a split second. That, that time that you would have to take to accurately judge the situation and recognize that it's either a threat or not a threat can cost you your life in an instant because the person that's coming through that door, if they are the shooter, their objective is single-handedly to kill as many people as possible at that time. They're indiscriminate in who they are shooting at, whereas a teacher in that instance would have to be sure that the person that they are pointing their handgun at and going to fire at is actually the gunman. You know, one thing for sure that you do, uh, even the most courageous and well-armed people in the military when they're facing automatic or semi-automatic or sniper fire is cover and concealment. It's been alluded to in some of the proposals, you know, to harden the schools, although one hates to think that you would be sending your kids to school in a fortress. If you were given a job right now to say, you know, we're, uh, Sergeant Martin, we're, we've, uh, we've been looking at, uh, at your background and what you've experienced. We don't want to make our school a fortress, but we'd like to do some things that would certainly maximize the chance of the maximum number of survivors in any kind of, of shooting without having to arm our teachers. Uh, by using that concept of cover and concealment, does that trigger any ideas for you on what you might propose for schools? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is, is you know, if a shooting starts and, and you're in a classroom environment, the biggest thing is going to be barricading that door so that the shooter has no opportunity to enter. And at the same time, moving the students to probably the back of that classroom, keeping them out of view from... You know, when I was in high school, the the doors that were that led into our classrooms had kind of a 
a single long pane glass uh, that you could that you could look through. And the last thing you, that you would want is a shooter to kind of be able to look through that glass and see that there are students kind of hiding back in that corner because then all he has to do is shoot out that glass and then he can stick that through there and you know, start firing at the, at the students that are back in that corner. And we would actually, in the military, we call that the fatal funnel. It's, we call it the fatal funnel because it is the view that the shooter has. And if you are within that range, then you are a target and you are an accessible target to them. And in this instance, the, the kind of cover and concealment that you'd want these students to take is to, to, to stay away from windows and stay low to the ground, uh, bunching up as close as possible so that they are out of view and out of sight. I think a shooter would be much, much more likely that if they didn't see anybody that they could actively get to, then they would probably try to move on to the next target. And if everybody were to do that, then eventually you're limiting the total number of targets that are going to be available to him. So what are we going to do? Because it's not just schools. I mean, obviously the conversation right now is focused on schools, but you know, ever since 9-11, we've been talking about you know, just how many soft targets there are, and certain things have been done to prevent mass killings. From your perspective, what do we do to make sure that these shootings, number one, don't happen, but to the extent they do happen, the damage and the death is really, really limited compared to what's been happening. The first thing I would say is the way that this national discussion has taken place about arming teachers is that I feel like we're jumping so many steps that could kind of go in between that would help prevent a vast number of these deaths. I think the fact that we're talking about discussing arming teachers is a very kind of final and fatalistic view as to how we address a school shooting. I think that there is ample opportunity to address, you know, how do you actually prevent a shooter from getting in the building? In the, the shooting at Parkland, the shooter showed up with a backpack full of weapons in an Uber at two o'clock in the afternoon and was able to walk into the building and pull a fire alarm. You know, what can schools do to address how visitors and how individuals actually come into a school? whether that's through having a single, you know, single access point where you know, individuals are, are stopped in a confined area until their, their identification can be validated and then allow them into the building, or if they have large bags with them, that they're in this contained area, that a search can be conducted to ensure that they don't have weapons with them of some sort. I think you're just really at that point taking the precautions of, of helping maintain a safe learning environment. The other thing that I would that I would recommend is in Parkland, unfortunately, there seems to be so many things that went wrong beforehand that could have potentially helped stop this incident from ever taking place. Whether it was the, the call to the FBI with the tip about how worried and concerned they were about the Instagram posts and things like that, the number of police calls that that this individual had received, I think that's these are very much human errors. And I think that this provides an excellent opportunity to review how the how this type of information as it comes in is actually dealt with when you know an, an individual is brought to attention that they could be a potential threat, then there actually is a, a system in place that allows follow-up and follow through to determine if this person is actually a threat or something different to be addressed with them. The other thing that I would say, our country has existed before with 
you know, the, the assault weapons ban that expired 2004, 2005. It's not that our country has, you know, that the AR-15 has always been available because it hasn't. The prevalence of them in mass shootings is evidenced by, you know, the, the Orlando nightclub shooting, the school shootings that are taking place, the Las Vegas massacre that took place. The, the fact that these, that these weapon systems were originally designed to carry out mass killing in a war and is now available to any civilian over the age of 18, that there just has to be, I think, kind of some common sense that it isn't an attack on a Second Amendment right. Now, we're not diminishing your ability to be able to protect yourself in these situations. It's that these weapon systems are so destructive when they are used in the wrong way. And there is no practical, there really isn't a practical situation that I think an AR-15 serves a purpose outside of the fact that maybe they're fun to shoot. But the fact that they carry 30-round magazines as, as a standard load allows for just so much destruction to take place that even if you don't want to ban an AR-15, then let's look at limiting the magazine size because those split seconds, those seconds in between, are really the difference between life and death and potentially being able to stop that shooter. If you only had to reload twice to get off 60 rounds instead of six times, there's six pauses in one and there's only one in another. If they have to spend more time reloading, that you're going to allow an opportunity for the good guys to potentially get there and intervene or allow more people to escape. It occurs to me that you told me that both your first and your last firefight had to do with really winning hearts and minds in one particular Afghanistan village. What's the status of that village right now? I imagine you, you follow the war to some degree. You know, the, uh, so the name of the village was Lackany. And when we first arrived, we replaced this Canadian unit. And they themselves, as far as I know, had actually never gone into the village. The first time that we tried to was, was on the patrol that I ended up stepping on the IED. And as we were kind of trying to come into the village, there was a prayer that was put out on the loudspeaker within the village that was really kind of eerie uh, because I think it, it signaled that we were coming and that it was kind of a preparation for an attack against us if, if needed. And, and then the second time we were actually able to get in to the village, but nobody was around to actually talk to us. They, they all kind of hunkered down in their homes and, and refused to speak to anybody. And I think that's just kind of a testament to how strong of a grip that the Taliban had in that specific village. Since we left, the last time that I really heard anything about the, the Panjway district, which is where a lot of our operations took place, is that the locals themselves had done the job that, that the Canadian and American forces couldn't do. And it was the civilians themselves that began dr driving out the Taliban from that area. Mm. That's fascinating. The other fascinating thing is, and again, I don't know if this can be applied to our efforts to figure out how to protect schools better, but the way you described the prayers over the loudspeakers giving you, a heavily armed soldier, a very eerie feeling, you know, once an attack is identified, to use loudspeakers to disorient or do you think that could work? I think, I think anything that you can do to distract the shooter is a positive. Recently, I saw this, this video that talked about this school in, in I believe it was in Indiana, that had spent $400,000 installing kind of this 
active shooter lockdown system within their building. And part of that system allowed them to specifically lock down the section of the hallway that that shooter was in so that they couldn't actually continue to move throughout the school. But then there were two other things that it had. Loud sounding, high pitched alarms that kind of traveled throughout the hallway. And then they also dispersed smoke to, re- to remove any sort of visibility for the shooter so that he couldn't actually see anything. Oh, wow. It would actually be, and, and, and the idea there is to, you lock them kind of in this one corridor and then you work to disorient them so that they don't actually know what's taking place and they can't really respond. Now it's, I'm locked in this area, it's smoky, it's all this noise is going on. His entire plan, I think at that point, is completely frustrated. Uh, it has the potential to make a huge impact on on him actually being able to carry out the the type of killing that they were hoping to. Well, that's a four hundred thousand dollars solution, but but this, the principles uh, could be conceivably applied in a less expensive way. Um, right. You're how old now? I'm thirty one. You're thirty one, and and what would you like to do with the next five years of your life professionally? Uh, I got a hotel and restaurant management degree from the University of Missouri. And uh, once I left the service, I obtained my MBA from Indiana University. After I graduated with my MBA from Indiana, I I moved up to Milwaukee and worked with the company as an internal consultant that sold products and services to the senior living communities across the country. And, you know, ultimately, it was not a good fit for me, and I don't think it was a good fit for the company. And, And I actually resigned from that position. And... I contacted this woman, Gail Nichols from from Indiana, who offered to kind of take me up as a career coach. And it's through those discussions with her that I've learned, I think, much more than than what I'm looking to do is it's not necessarily in a specific field or, you know, doing a specific thing. I think the biggest and most important aspect for me is to be able to recognize what my strengths are and understand my values and how I can pair those two together. And if I can find the right type of environment that allows me to play off my strengths and espouses my values, then that's the path that I want to follow. You have a very measured tone. And I suspect that's one of the things that appealed, although the title was quite provocative. Give me that title one more time. Yeah, the the title of the article was... I've been shot in combat, and as a veteran, I'm telling you, allowing teachers to be armed is an asinine idea. So asinine, you know, so it was a provocative title. It caught our attention, but after the word asinine, you know, you are a very measured person and a very thoughtful person, and, you know, how much of that, of that tone, of that way of approaching things, that clearly you're an analytical type person, how much of that do you just have to throw away when you're in a place like Afghanistan, or does that come with you and it just makes you a different kind of, of soldier? You know, I think that, uh, I think it's because of the military that I'm probably a little bit more measured than I, than I would have been in the uh, kind of looking back on that. You know, the military is, uh, is a very unique organization in the fact that it allows 18 and 19 and 20 year old kids to, to be leaders in life and death situations. There's, there's a lot of responsibility that comes along with that. And it was a responsibility that I tried to take very seriously. Considering everything that took place during my deployment um, and the things that I saw and the things that happened to you know, the, the soldiers that I served with, when I look at the big picture of life and everything that's going on in our society today, it helps kind of keep me grounded to know that 
you know, I've, I've dealt with the most extreme of the extremes, I feel like. And if I can survive that and if I can, re, you know, maintain my composure and, and, and respond in kind to others, maybe when I disagree or when something provocative is thrown out there, I think it leads towards actually being able to have a much more effective conversation and potentially open up others to listen maybe a little bit harder. Uh, Matt Martin, uh, I thank you so much uh, for joining me on this uh, Wavemaker conversation. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this program enriching, even elevating, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean, or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations. <laughs>